It's good to read through a whole Bible book, isn't it? You, the, the themes start to jump out as you, as you hear repeated words, repeated phrases. Um, you'll be glad we didn't do that with Exodus, though. <laughs> well, we've been going the last few weeks, we've finished Exodus, and we've been doing kind of five chapters at a time. So you'll, this morning, we're only concentrating on the first four verses of this book, this letter of Titus. Um, so it's important that before we start, though, that we pray together and ask for God's help. So would you pray? Gracious Father in heaven, Paul writes here with the authority of an apostle and the humility of a servant. Grant to us, please, an awareness of that authority, that we would sit under your word, not over it, and grant us an attitude of humility, that we would listen and that we would be. And we ask this in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Dear Andy, I must begin with a massive apology for the lateness of this letter. A combination of events and a general lack of organization has led to this letter being inexcusably late. Once again, I am very sorry. I can only hope to make it up to you by writing a girly long letter in response. I wonder if you're one of these types of people who likes to read other people's mail. That, that was a letter written to me by a guy I read the Bible to one-to-one in London. And no doubt there are some of you who would be fascinated to know what on earth would a guy write to another guy in a girly long letter? For some of us, it can be very intriguing to read other people's mail. I've just moved into a flat. And you know when you move in, you sometimes get the mail from the previous occupant of the house or flat. So I got home this week. I came through the door and there was a letter on the mat. And so excited was I that I just tore in without noticing the name on the front of the letter. And here was I being, oh not I, the previous owner, being invited to appear on the next series of the Beech Grove Garden. So look out for me. <laughs> no, no. But much of the time when you receive other people's mail, it can be wildly irrelevant because, and brutally boring because it's got nothing to do with you. So as this morning, we, we go into this Bible book called Titus. We're reading someone else's mail. And it's a very personal letter between Paul to a friend, Titus. Do you see their intimacy in verse 4? To Titus, my true son, Paul writes. So here is Titus, maybe he became a Christian through Paul, and uh, he is now becoming this mentoring relationship with Paul. Paul, an older, more experienced believer, gets alongside this younger Christian, and he encourages him, he nurtures him, he he is teaching him. So in verse 4, it's described as a father and son relationship. So there is a difference in age and in stage, but you see there's a commonality, they share a common faith. They are saved by the same gospel. Now let's pause here straight away to knock out some application. We're trying at Charlotte to develop a a culture of these one-to-one mentoring relationships. We would love that all the way throughout the church, wherever you look, there are these relationships of mentoring. So an older, more experienced, mature Christian gets along someone who is just starting out in the faith or a little bit further behind, and helps them, teaches them, encourages them. We want these Paul-Titus relationships. So maybe you're at the granny-granddad age and stage of life. 
Well, there are loads of younger couples who are just starting out as mums and dads. Wouldn't it be great to get alongside and to say to them, hey, I've been there, I've done that. Yeah, I failed sometimes, but let me share how I brought my Christians up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Or maybe some of you are maybe late 20s, early 30s, and you look down on the new freshers, and you can barely remember your freshers' week for various reasons. And you see them and you think, you know, I would have loved just a slightly older Christian to get alongside of me and say, okay, here's how you meander your way through your first year at university. Become the mentor. Be the, the mummy for these people. Who, who in this church could be your spiritual son or spiritual daughter in the faith? Who could you become this mentor for? Well, anyway, back to Titus. Um, we're reading someone else's mail. But not only is it not to us, it's also ancient. What is, what is the relevance in 2,000-year-old correspondence? Well, although this is a personal letter, I want you also to notice that Paul was expecting the church in Crete to listen in. So look right to the last phrase of the letter. Paul says... Grace be with you all. Do you see the plural there? He started off to Titus, but he knows the church are going to be eavesdropping in. So Paul is not only writing a personal letter, here's a public letter for the church, and here's where the relevance for us is. As God's apostle addresses us as his church. Now let's just notice, before we go any further, a few things about this church in Crete. Look at verse 5, because we're told that This is a pretty young church. This is a kind of church plant because they've not even appointed elders yet. So here is a church in embryo, a a baby church. Now, we're not. We're not a church plant. But as we look at this young church and what Paul says to them and how he instructs him, what should define them in their infancy must also be evident in us in our maturity. And if that's not, if we're maybe more senile than mature, then we've got some work to do. We need to straighten ourselves out. And that is why Titus is here for us. But we are at the stage of appointing elders. So this book's going to be really practical. Do you see the relevance? But also notice, we're going to go to verse 10 of chapter 1. This is a church at risk. Verse 10, there are rebellious people who will deceive us as the church. Is the fact that you are at risk as a Christian, we are at risk as a church from false teaching. Is that even on your radar? It ought to be. This week, as taxpayers, as taxpayers, not the students, we have paid for the privilege of escorting a man through our city who teaches that Jesus is not enough, the Bible is not enough, and faith is not enough. We need to know, okay, Paul, how do we defend ourselves against false teaching. The Church of Scotland is a warning to us as well. The people in that church who are willing to say homosexual practice is fine. Well, Titus is here to say, do you know what? Wake up. Beware. We are at the risk of false teaching. But thirdly, notice this is a church in a culture. Look at verse 12 and how Crete is described. Cretans are always liars evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Imagine that kind of culture. Imagine a culture where a former leader is allegedly accused of lying about the existence of weapons of mass destruction. Imagine a culture where its politicians would lie about their expenses 
Always liars. Evil brutes. Can you imagine a culture that is defined by a sporting hero who will sleep with a prostitute and leave his pregnant wife at home? Can you imagine such a society? Lazy gluttons. Imagine a culture known for its obesity. Imagine a culture, if you can, where all the conversation revolves around how much alcohol is consumed. Imagine a culture, no less, that invents a deep-fried Mars bar. It's not that hard to imagine, is it? Always liars, lazy gluttons, evil brutes. Just see the relevance? This is letter. It's not written to us, but it is written for us. How do we appoint elders? Who do we appoint as elders? How do we live in a shamelessly immoral culture? How do we defend ourselves from false teaching? Well, Titus here, the book, is written by Paul with all the authority of God's servant as Jesus' apostle, but with the intimacy of a father. And he's here to answer these questions. And his answer, in simplification, is found in verse 1, which we're going to look at this morning. He says, I want you to know the truth, and I want you to be godly. And these two things are going to come up time and time again in the book of Titus. Know the truth and be godly. And it's almost as if in the introduction to his letter, Paul introduces us to these two hobby horses of his. So he, he takes and says, meet hobby horse one, know the truth. Meet hobby horse two, be godly. Horses always have strange names, so go with it. Know the truth and be godly. And throughout the letter, he is going to ride each horse for a while. He's going to say, know the truth, know the truth, know the truth. He's going to park that one. You don't park a horse. He's going to tie a horse. And then he's going to go, be godly, be godly, be godly. And he's going to go between these two things. Know the truth and be godly. So this morning, we're going to look at these opening verses. What do they say about these two things? So verse 1. Paul, a servant of God's, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. He is saying to us, know the truth. It's going to be a big theme throughout this letter, truth. Did you notice when we read through, you see the repeated phrases like trustworthy message, true testimony, sound doctrine, trustworthy saying. Paul is assuming an absolute truth. Absolute because it comes from the God who does not lie. An unchanging truth because it comes from the God who promised it in eternity. This is not a progressive truth. This is not an impossibility of truth. This is not even just a personal truth. It is not a truth. It is the truth, Paul says. In line with Jesus, who didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. No, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. And so Paul is here to teach us this truth, the truth. But he not only writes about this truth. You see in his introduction, in the first line, he introduces himself, his whole existence for the knowledge of this truth. And so time and again in the letter, he's going to say, do you hear that repeated thing as well to Titus? Okay, Titus, teach, teach, teach. So he said things like, you must teach. Teach the older men. Teach the older women. Train the younger women. In your teaching, teach slaves. These then are the things you should teach. Silence those who deceive. Rebuke those who reject the truth. Teach, Titus. Teach. You notice that? Because Paul wants you to know this truth. Now, the most basic point here is that this early church, this 
community right at the start was a learning community. That's evident, isn't it? Teach, train, learn. Here was a church who was in the habit of growing in this knowledge of the truth. And so Paul says to the church, he says to us, know the truth. Get to know it. Learn this. Teach this truth. Be theologians. Study God's. Get into doctrine. Know this truth. Sadly, a lot of us these days are defined not by a habit of learning, but by a biblical illiteracy. Is that fair? Our knowledge of the truth, our knowledge of the Bible is painfully shallow. We can devour Harry Potter, every single book, but the spine on our Bibles is barely bent. We know all the results from yesterday's Premiership League title, but we barely could even locate the Ten, Commandment, the Ten Commandments in the Scriptures. We help our children with their math homework, their physics homework, their French homework, but we never spend any time teaching them about the eternal truthful gods. We entertain our young people on a Friday night for a couple hours and we tag on maybe 30 seconds of an epilogue. It's almost as if there's an apathy, an, an, an allergy to theology. We, we have this attitude that our oh, theology is only for the elders to worry about. Doctrine is only for Bible college students. No, actually we are. We're all theologians. We all have an understanding of who God is, of what God does. Now that can be much or little, uninformed or informed, true or false. But we are all theologians. Even the atheist does theology. But his theology is just that there is no God. So the question this morning is not whether you have a theology or not, but I want to ask whether your theology is a theology, a knowledge of the truth. That is what counts. Because meaningful relationship with God depends on true knowledge of him. There are a few phrases which we often hear in Bible studies or fellowship groups or conversations with Christians like, you may have heard them, I like to think of God as, I don't like to think of God as, my God could never, or even this part of the Bible means to me that, do you know what, these are all dangerous turns of phrase. Because the issue is not, what do I want God to be like? The issue is not, what do I think the Bible means to me? The issue is, what is the truth that God has revealed in Scripture? Paul wants you to know the truth, not what you think the truth ought to be. Now, presumably the question is, okay, what is, what is this truth? What is the truth, the truth that Paul wants us to know? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing in Titus, quite the opposite. Three times, once in each chapter, he lays out what this truth is. It's almost like three courses in a meal. But it's not a light starter and an aperitif, a main course and a light dessert. No, it's like three slabs of theological meat in each chapter. It's like not for vegetarians. Paul says, here is the truth, once in each chapter. He waxes lyrical. And just in our first four verses unbelievable. Verse 2, this is a truth which brings the hope of eternal life, not a, a vain hope, but confident, certain hope based on the superstructure of God's eternal character as the one who cannot lie. But more than that, 
This is a hope that was promised when? Before the beginning of time. Get your head around that. Before there was anything, before there was any humans, God promised this truth. What? Who was there? No one. Just God. He promised it. Well, here is the truth. Your knowledge of the truth, your knowledge of God did not start with your initiative. It did not start through that friend, on that camp, in that sermon. But it began before creation. As God the Father promises to God the Son, God the Son promises with God the Father that they are going to enter into this covenant, this promise that they would bring eternal hope to their people. Do you see the bigness of this? Do you see the hugeness of what you're involved in as a Christian? That you are part of, caught up in, involved in this truth which looks forward to a post-creation, new creation hope and began in a pre-creation eternity. That is huge. And this eternal plan is brought into sync as Paul teaches us in this letter about God as Savior. You notice that repeated in verse 3 and then in verse 4? God our Savior. That word's going to come up again and again in Titus. So in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, God our Savior. The grace of God that brings salvation. Chapter 3, in that next slab of theological meat, he's going to say, God our Savior. And then twice, he saved us. He saved us. The truth that, God wants, that Paul wants you to know is that God is the Savior. And that salvation comes through the Savior that is Jesus Christ. Why is it important that you know this truth? Well, Paul's going to say in Titus chapter 3, you need this truth because you are foolish, disobedient. You are a deceived and enslaved sinner, much in need of the kindness of God, much in need of being washed clean of your sins by the death of Jesus, much in need of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, much in need to be justified by grace. Why is it important that you are concerned about the truth? Why, is it, why does doctrine and theology matter? Because this truth is a truth that saves, like nothing else can. The study of doctrine, the study of the truth, the study of theology is never an end in itself, but it is always so that you might know God as Savior. That although you are a great sinner, he is the great Savior. And so Paul, do you see how he writes about himself? First line, he is an apostle, a servant for the faith of God's elect. He writes so that those who have been chosen before the creation of the world might be called forth in faith to know him as Savior. And he brings this truth to light as he preaches the gospel. Now there's a double challenge here. Know the truth, yes. So are you growing? Are you knowing? Are you learning this truth in God's word? But also, Paul exists for the faith of others. Paul says, my the reason for my existence is so that other people may be called forth to faith in Jesus. It's quite easy, isn't it, to live a kind of self-absorbed life? Everything is me, for me. Well, how about this? The reason for me living in my block of flats 
The reason for you working at Standard Life, the reason for you being at university is for the faith of God's elect. There's a reason to get up on Monday morning. There's a reason for living that you exist for the faith of others. So yes, know this truth, but know it so that you might share it. So there's the first hobby horse, if you like. Know the truth, know the truth, know the truth. But that is followed closely behind by a second. Paul says, okay, be godly, be godly. Do you notice that in verse 1? Here is a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowing the truth is not an end in itself, but it is supposed to lead somewhere. Now, I guess that you will have noticed a cultural obsession that has arisen. And that is that of having a gym membership. Now, I know a ton of you have one. And I know most of you don't use it. But there is this obsession that we, everybody goes to the gym now. Now, especially amongst guys my age, there is a fad that has arisen that they, they go to the gym religiously, relentlessly, and they pump their weights, and they drink their protein shakes, all so that they can have the ripped, ripped arms and a, a tight six-pack. And you, you ask these guys... Okay, why are you doing that? What are you doing this for? Don't know. It's not that they're joining the army. It's not that they're in the GB Olympic 2012 team. It's not even that they play rugby. It's just so that they can stand in front of the gym mirror and go, that is it. There There is no reason for it. And Paul says to us, beware. Do not... Do not know the truth just for the sake of improving your theological six-pack. Don't grow in this knowledge of the truth just to be a theological heavyweight. He says this knowledge of the truth is meant to lead somewhere. For some of us, theology can be that kind of, okay, I'll I'll pump the weights, I'll get the knowledge. I'll, I'll get ripped so that I can drop some theological bombs into conversation. I can sound amazing in the Bible study. I can sound intellectual when I pray. And all we're doing is standing in front of others and flexing and going, substitutionary atonement. Just, just, because, just because we think, oh, well, I want to get ripped. I want to, I want to know this truth. No, no, Paul says, in all seriousness, this is not a purposeless exercise. Do you see this leads to godliness? So what is this godliness? How do we define that? Well, using Paul's language of Titus, godliness is the right behavior that flows from a right belief. It is the complete devotion that flows from sound doctrine. Let me say that again. It is the right behavior that comes from a right belief. It is the complete devotion that comes from sound doctrine. What you know has a direct bearing on how you then live. And Paul will say in this letter, the opposite is true. Wrong belief will always lead to wrong practice. He will say that wrong doctrine will lead to misguided devotion. Look down to verse, uh, let's see, verse 16. Here are these false teachers. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deceive him. Do you see that? What you think you know of God always will lead to the action. They're intimately tied together. 
And so we need to ensure that we know the truth so that that would lead to a right godliness. I was speaking a while ago now to an elder from another church in Edinburgh. And he said this to me, there's very little someone needs to know to live as a Christian. And he explained that his vision for his church was to scrap Sunday services, get rid of preaching, so that people could just, once they become Christians, just go and live. Just go and be a Christian. You don't need to know much. Just go and live. And I want, you, I want to show you the folly of that position. That devotion without doctrine is just inherently unstable. Because it is impossible, impossible to live a life of godliness without first knowing the truth that leads to that godliness. This is why Paul has such a high view of preaching. This is why he will say in this letter, teach Titus, teach. Because if we are to live as Christians, live a life of godliness, we first need to know the truth that leads to that godliness. That is why we treasure preaching, we treasure our Bible studies, we treasure our quiet times, so that we might live this life of right behavior and complete devotion. We are, like the Cretans, surrounded by this culture of always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And it's very tempting. It is very easy to blend in, to mimic that culture. But Paul says, if you know this truth, if you truly know God as your Savior, then there is a, a behavior which is to separate you from this world. That um, if you... You are still in this culture. It's not as if you're removed from it, but there is to be a behavior, a godliness that distinguishes you from it. And what is amazing about this book of Titus is that this godliness is to invade every single aspect of our lives. Now, this should blow your mind. Think of the God we're talking about. Remember this eternal God who is involved in and existed in pre-creation eternity and brings us this hope for post-creation, new creation eternity, this big, transcendent, eternal God. And Titus is concerned about your attitudes. This big, transcendent, eternal God is concerned in Titus about your alcohol consumption. He is concerned about your temper. He's concerned about your self-discipline. He's concerned about how you talk back to your boss. He's concerned about how you look after your home. He's concerned about how you submit to authority. Do you see the bigness of this? The huge God is interested in the intimate details of your life. This belief in this God is to lead to a godliness which permeates every single thing you do. Nothing left out. Now this makes Monday meaningful. That as you go into work tomorrow morning, as you go into lectures, as you go into school, the God of eternity desires for you, longs for you, to live a life of godliness that stems from the truth of Him. If we know the truth about Him being our Savior, it must lead us to this life of godliness. Sadly, we, we do just too often mimic the culture. But here's the challenge. If we were to be a fly in the wall in your office tomorrow morning, if we were to be a fly in the wall in your halls of residence, if we were to be a fly in the wall at dinner times in your house, 
would we be able to pick you out as someone who knows the truth by your godliness, by your behavior, by your devotion to Jesus? See, for years and years, uh, Charlotte Chapel has been this great preaching station. It has been this great, maybe we see it as a, a theological heavyweight. Paul's challenge for us this morning is, okay, does your godliness match that? Does your devotion to Jesus match that? Or are you just flexing in front of the mirror for no apparent reason? That's why it's important when you do your quiet time, when we have our fellowship groups, when we have our student lunch, that yes, we ask the question, what is the truth that God is telling us in this passage? But that we must leave time for, wrestle in, give ourselves to the application question. What is the godliness that this truth leads to? That's a hard question to ask, but that is the question we must do. Let's think of the students again for a second. Assess your first week at uni. Maybe you've had your freshers week this week. Take a moment of self-assessment. How has your godliness been? How has your devotion to Jesus been? As you've been involved in that culture of Freshers' Week, have you been defined as someone who knows the truth and so leads to godliness? I think Paul is describing students when he says lazy gluttons. Is that not not your average fresher? Lazy glutton. Doesn't do a lot, but drinks a lot. The challenge is, are we going to be distinguished from that? If you know God as your Savior, if you know Jesus is the one who has washed you clean from your sin, then could we pick you out because of your godliness as one who knows that truth? The challenge for us today is to resolve to say, yes, this week, I'm going to make my Monday meaningful by having the right behavior, the right devotion to my Savior Jesus Christ because I know this truth as the truth, the way, and it is our life. So Paul says, know the truth, know the truth, know the truth. But that also must come with, be godly, be godly, be godly. In YPM, we always talk about uh, Barry Sprott's scissors. Uh, Scissors don't work if you've only got one half. You need both. And so remember, Barry's not here this morning, remember Barry Sprott's scissors. Yes, know the truth, but that must lead to godliness. So here's a a comfort to take into Monday morning. Be comforted with the fact that this God of eternity has promised in eternity and has made certain for eternity this hope of God as Savior. There is something to cling to this week. But here's a challenge to take into Monday to make your Monday meaningful. That this God of grace, this God of eternity, this God of salvation, is concerned with the way you live and absolutely everything you do. And he longs for you to have that right behavior that comes from right belief, that complete devotion that comes from uh, sound doctrine. Know the truth. Be godly. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, God our Savior, we praise you for your eternal promises. We praise you for that eternal hope through Jesus Christ. Please forgive us for our indifference to the truth, for our biblical illiteracy, 
Forgive us for when we conform to the shameless immorality of our culture. Please grant us a true knowledge of the truth about you and your gospel. Help us, please, to live a life of devoted godliness. May there not be a single area that is not affected, not flooded by the truths of your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.